Hello and welcome to Fatal Femmes, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will focus on a mystery, suspense, or thriller written by or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Kenny-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. Today we're talking about the 1940 film Rebecca, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Joan Fontaine, Laurence Olivier, and Judith Anderson, based on the 1938 novel by Daphne du Maurier. We do want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We get in-depth on every twist and mystery in this book and movie, so if you care about that, go read or watch it and then come back. We'll be waiting. To get us started, here's the synopsis. Rebecca tells the story of a young woman who marries a fascinating widower only to find out that she must live in the shadow of his former wife, who died mysteriously several years earlier. The wife must come to grips with the terrible secrets of her handsome, cold husband, and she must also deal with the jealous, obsessed housekeeper who will not accept her as mistress of the house. We also want to give trigger warnings for emotional abuse, manipulation, and suicide. Well, today we have with us a very special guest, Casey Ryan. Yay! Yay! It's me! (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Casey? Well, I am a writer and performer uh, here in the area. I've known Laura for many years, and I've just met Lacey (laughs) somehow. And uh, I'm a huge fan of Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. I watched the movie when I was in my later high school years, and after a breakup in college, I picked up the book, um, which I had avoided for a long time, because if you look at the cover of the mass market paperback, it legit looks like a romance novel. It's like red satin and like big gold letters. And you look at it and you're like, well, this must be very melodramatic and cheesy. But then when you read it, it's just, it's honestly my favorite book of all time. So I have been a Rebecca fan for over 10 years. Wow. So the cover does not match the content. No, it does not. Okay, good to know. (laughs) They marketed it as a romance to try to sell more copies, and Daphne du Maurier was furious about it because she was not a romance writer. She didn't like romance books. She wrote, some call it like gothic suspense, some call it like bordering on gothic horror, but she was very, very unhappy with her publishers about the way they marketed this book. So you're not the only one who was misled yeah. by the cover. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, is that I'm a, I'm actually a big fan of gothic romance because I think that a lot of people misconstrue that romance means of people falling in love with each other, which, you know, sure, yeah, that can happen. But if you look at the Romantic Age, it was really more about nature and passion and, like, heightened emotion so and that's that is very much what Rebecca is it's just not like nah, nah, kisses <laughs> I love you no I love you <laughs> but like that scene in um singing in the rain where they're filming the first yes talkie. yes yes I no, love you no, I love no. you I love you <laughs> Well, and anytime you put the word gothic in front of something, it usually doesn't mean there's going to be a whole lot of happiness happening in that thing. <laughs> I know this has nothing to do with what it really is. It just makes me think of a lo- like a love story in Hot Topic. <laughs> like a gothic love story. A gothic romance <laughs> in Hot Topic. So you mean a young adult novel? <laughs> <laughs> yes, a gothic romance YA novel. <laughs> Little did they know their summer job. (laughs) 
So Lacey, how did you come to Rebecca? I discovered Re- Rebecca through you because you bought tickets to the Alamo Draft House tea, afternoon tea, is that what it's called? And we saw it. That was the first time I had seen it. I love Alfred Hitchcock, but there are just a few movies of his I haven't seen, Rebecca being one of them. I've seen a few more obscure things, but a lot of his bigger hits I haven't seen. And we've been on this kick of a lot of black and white suspense movies with these very strong female roles. And it fit perfectly in with that. And I came out of that feeling very much how you said it's I think it's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, converts. Literally, it's so good, though. It just, it it ages so well. The story is relevant now. I, it's just, it's it's great. So both of us put Diabliques on our list of top movies, which is yes. another episode we did. Do you like this one about the same, more or less than that one? Mm, they're very different to me. There are things stylistically that are very similar because a, a lot of, like, the close-up on the eyes, the use of shadows... Those types of things give it very a similar style, but content-wise, very, very different. I think I might like Rebecca a little bit more. I don't, no, it's not lighter. No, it's not lighter, it, but there's something about the way Hitchcock can build a scene or the way he can build tension in a scene and also the way he can make the character or the camera almost another character because I don't want to get too far because this is way into the movie, mm-hmm. but um, where Maxim is... Um, talking about Rebecca, this monologue that Rebecca gives, and the camera's basically panning through where she would have walked. Yeah. You can see her. You can absolutely see that character. And I think the way that he's able to build those scenes and the use of camera and shadow is really yeah remarkable. It's It's been a while since I've seen this movie, but I do think that is by far one of my favorite shots in film of all time. And it's so weird to say that about a slow pan which can usually be the most obnoxious thing in a movie. Mm-hmm. It's just like, just cut to this next <laughs> cut. In this movie, it absolutely works. It, you get to use your imagination because they, they provide the setting and then your mind gets to add in everything else. And that's kind of a treat that you don't get a lot in movies. And that's exactly what the book does as well. Mm. So while you've mentioned the book, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about Daphne du Maurier. So Daphne du Maurier was actually made a dame. Did you know that? Dang. Sorry, someone had to do it. <laughs> um, and I found out by watching this documentary on her that her husband became the treasurer to Queen Elizabeth. Oh, cool. Nice. So she was like way up there in social standing. She died on the same day I got married. So Tight. she... <laughs> <laughs> A different year. You didn't kill Daphne du Maurier. No, I'm just... No, <laughs> that's my wedding. <laughs> yeah, every wedding has to have a sacrifice. Oh. Lacey kills Daphne du Maurier with her love. With my love. <laughs> so she was born May 13th, 1907 and died April 19th, 1989. Oh, the year after you were born. Maybe you did kill her. <laughs> No, oh, 1989. I was like, I thought it said 1889. I'm like, girl, how old do you think I am? <laughs> You're immortal. Uh, I just age really slowly. One of her best-selling books is Rebecca, but she also wrote the short story The Birds that Hitchcock's movie The Birds was based off of. Hitchcock actually adapted three of her things, um, Rebecca, The Birds, and Jamaica Inn. I don't know that one. I don't either, but I really want to watch it because it was also the screenplay was co-written by a female author. So and it was um, directed by a screenwriter. Yeah. Oh, cool. 
Cool. She spent most of her life in Cornwall, and she wrote a book that I just got that I'm really excited about called Vanishing Cornwall, and her son took all of the photographs for it. She was a really interesting person because her father wanted her to be a boy, and she wished that she had been born a boy, and she said that there were two sides of her. There was her feminine side, which was Daphne du Maurier, but then she also had a boy that she kept locked in a box whose name was Eric Avon. I think it was Eric. She constantly fought between these two sides of her to keep the, the male part of her in the box. But later in her life, he did, she said he exploded out because she fell in love with the wife of one of her publishers, Doubleday. I don't think anything happened between them, but she also had a relationship, or at least it was rumored, with an actress who was in one of her plays. She had a very bad relationship with her husband. Um, After World War II, he came back and wanted her to move to London with him, where he was going to be stationed and working, and she said no, that she was going to stay in Cornwall with her kids because she'd gotten used to living by herself and was a very independent person. So... Pretty much for the rest of their married life, he lived in London and she lived there and he would come down and visit, but that was, that was kind of how their married life went. That's a lot to unpack. That actually, as we get into the story, that's drawing some interesting parallels between Rebecca and her life. So Mm -hmm. I feel like she probably drew from her own life. Uh, Her dad was a well-known actor. She actually wrote his biography after he died, but he was also a womanizer and the woman that she was rumored to have a relationship with it was also one of her dad's girlfriends that that's that's some family dynamics right there yeah um i do remember reading that she was at least privately bisexual Mm. but uh when i heard about this uh this feminine side and this male side i'm like Okay, at the very least, she was gender fluid, but she had a lot of shame circling around her sexuality and her gender identity. And the thing is, is that uh, according to a Guardian article, she was she wasn't even necessarily maternal. I mean, she she loved her kids, but she preferred her career over being a mom. Being a mom. That's what this documentary I watched said. That she was loving to them and she liked to cuddle with them. But as far as taking care of them, that was the nanny's job to do. She didn't really have like time Like the for day-to-day, that. like feeding, yeah. washing, mm-hmm. all of those necessary. Like, well, I can completely understand that. Because a lot of women were kind of forced into those roles, even if it wasn't what they wanted to do because of what societally was demanded of them. Yeah, she seemed more like, you know, the cool, fun aunt who just happened to be their mom, too. But they had one of her daughters on the interview this documentary, and she didn't have anything bad to say about her. She so I don't think they had a bad life per se. Well, and it doesn't it doesn't sound like that can, that has to be a problem because you can be a great mom and not necessarily want to do all of those little things that you think you have to do to be a good mom. Because society will tell you what those things are, but at the end of the day, if you love your kids, that's all that matters. And if you need to, like, outsource for all those tasks that you don't like to do, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And they were still being fine. taken care of. No, that's so, what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not like she was just, like, locking them in a closet or something. Or just like, oh, here, here's, you know, bag of pretzels. Eat sometime. <laughs> There's a hot pocket in the fridge. <laughs> I have to go. Is that like Matilda's mom? Sleeps on the stove, heated up if you get hungry. (laughs) So let's jump into the movie. Let's do it. We open on one of the most famous lines in literature. 
Last night, I dreamed I went to Mandar. We get this nice, beautiful drive up this overgrown driveway, and in the distance, we see the house. Yeah, and the fun thing about this is it was all miniature, right? Yes, uh, Hitchcock built two miniatures for one reason, because they couldn't find the house that they wanted, but also, as will become apparent later, they needed to be able to do certain things to the house that they couldn't do to a real house. Like destroy it. <laughs> so they built one miniature where the doorways were about a foot high. So it was about 50 feet long, they said, took up almost an entire sound stage. Well, this was too big to fit in one camera shot, so they built a smaller version of it that they could use for, like, filming up the driveway and stuff. Yeah, and you can't tell. There's one scene at the end. Um, is it okay if I give a spoiler? We already said there's going to be okay. spoilers. Well, when the house is on fire at the end and the car pulls up and it's just very much like it looks like a little shadow puppet because it's like, do do do. this is how a car goes. <laughs> but you can tell that it's, like, just pantomimed. <laughs> it's just like a car puppet. That's the only time you can really tell. That it's a it's a small house because at any other time the detail in this house is great. It looks like a real house. This movie actually was nominated for an Academy Award for special effects, but it lost to um, something about like an Arabian Night type movie. I can't remember oh, robbed, what it was. Robbed. Um, that had like <laughs> genies and flying carpets and stuff, and they said that that movie had visual effects that you noticed whereas Rebecca's were made to not be noticed which was one thing that hurt it against that movie. Yeah probably now that would have served it better because the more subtle you can be now in your visual elements or your visual effects the better that it's considered because yeah. weren't you saying that like they would black out certain parts and then go back into the film and like paint over it to like put the house in and stuff? Right, because they couldn't actually have these giant vaulted ceilings. and Because they're know, on a soundstage, right? Right. Oh, my God. And, you know, the gate that they drive up to the house isn't actually behind it. So what they would do is they would black out the parts on the film that they didn't want to be shown. And then an artist would go in and paint the scenery that they wanted. And you really can't tell unless you know to look for it. Yeah, once mm -hmm. you told me, I could see it, but seeing it, it just seeing it before, it just looked like a very grand hallway or like maybe a soundstage. Yeah. Yeah. I was just watching the dream sequence and watching her kind of recount her dream of going back to Manderley and it kind of wraps you into the story. It draws you in initially because you're like, what mm -hmm. happened? Ooh, something really bad happened. <laughs> if you read the book, it's, it's weird because it's like they put the they it's like Daphne de Maurier put the epilogue at the beginning mm -hmm. and then she recounts it because she t uh the narrator talks about how she and Maxim are living in a hotel now and they don't talk about what happened because that's just kind of what keeps the peace and they're both really haunted by it and so then you go back to where she was when she first met Maxim and right. it goes through that whole story and then it just kind of a Roughly ends at the end. It's just like, okay, we're Fun. done. It's like, and the house is on fire. <laughs> the end. <laughs> and the house is on fire. This is fine. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a perfect segue. So we go from the dream sequence, or not the dream sequence, but the dream recounting to the south of France to when Maxim and the second Mrs. De Winter, as she is called, because she doesn't have a name. 
Yeah, which I think is really interesting. She doesn't have a name. She is only listed as the second Mrs. De Winter. I call her DW. <laughs> well, uh, the thing is, is that uh, it's a thematic theme because Rebecca's name is brought up over and over mm-hmm. and over and over. Rebecca is amazing. Rebecca is this. Rebecca is that. And everything is from the point of view of the second Mrs. De Winter. Mm-hmm. And it's mentioned that, you know, she does have a name. You just never know it. And one of the things that kind of makes this relationship with Maxim special to her, and it's such a small thing, but he sends her a card or something in the book, and she talks about how everybody misspells her name, and he spelled it correctly. Aww. And I'm like, oh, it's so cute, because <laughs> I totally get it. That's, yeah, yep. A lifetime of having your name spelled wrong, that's the way to your heart. Yep. <laughs> A small difference, obviously, but in the book, she meets him for the first time when she's sitting with the lady that she's a companion to. Edith Van Hopper, who's our queen. Which, in the movie, she meets him for the first time when she thinks he's about to jump off the cliff. That's right, because I was like, yeah, that's how she meets him in the movie, too. Completely forgot about the scene at the cliffs. Mm -hmm. Which, all of the scenes that take place on the cliffs or on the beach were filmed in California, interestingly enough. Fun fact. Yeah. Lara gets a fun fact noise every time she says that. <laughs> Maxim De Winter is about, well, she thinks he's about to jump off this cliff. And she's like, no, don't do it. Please stop me whenever, because I'm terrible at re- <laughs> retelling. <laughs> yeah, and he gives her a nasty look and tells her to get out of there, and so she runs off. And the next. He's, he's like, I am busy brooding. <laughs> like, didn't you see? Oh, he broods a lot. That's it. It's an overwhelming amount of brooding. Like, a lot of brooding. But back then, brooding could be real sexy. (laughs) Brooding equals sexy. (laughs) And if you watch some, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you love those boys who brood. (laughs) (laughs) I was just watching an episode before we were watching the movie this morning. And Angel was brooding. He's so good at brooding. He was really brooding. He was brooding whilst holding the blood. Wow. Just brooding over the blood. It was everything. Sorry, you don't know what we're talking about. All right. And... (laughs) Back to this reality. <laughs> I'm like, and now we're a Buffy podcast. Oh. So the next time that she sees him is when she's in the lobby with the lady that she's a companion to, Edith Van Hopper. Yeah, this woman is just the best. I love characters like this. You uh, you need some. You need a character like this just to kind of facilitate something. So I was kind of wondering because the last name Van Hopper stuck out to me because there was a gossip columnist that's like. Around the same time that Daphne du Maurier would have written the book, but they were they were on two sides of the world, so I don't know if that would have happened or two different countries rather. Um, but Hedda Van Hopper was a columnist in Hollywood, and I was just thinking, I wonder if there's any association there because Miss Van Hopper is a little bit of a gossip, and she's in everyone's business or wants to be in everyone's business. So I just kind of wondered if that maybe. Somehow Du Maurier used her as an inspiration. Used her as an inspiration. (laughs) I really love the line that she has when she said that there was a guy that used to duck into uh, hallways to avoid her and that he must have been in love with her. I'm like, I want that much confidence. I want want to just be like, oh, this person's avoiding me. Obviously they're in love with me and can't deal with it. (laughs) Just like completely ignorant to the world around you 
Yeah, uh, that's what I want. <laughs> uh, Edith Van Hopper and uh, Mrs. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice are those characters you like who are so over the top. And if you go to any improv show where someone is playing like someone very uppity, mm-hmm. they reflect those characters. Yes. Just like, oh my word. <laughs> Just like looking at them through the spectacles. <laughs> Did you see Maxim de Winter over there? <laughs> His wife was very beautiful. Nothing like you. <laughs> you ugly wench. <laughs> Literally, though, she's... Because it's like Maxim comes over and they're talking and then he leaves and she's like, I don't want to like embarrass you, but you were really forward. And, oh, don't look like that. You're just terrible, though. Yeah, and I don't... <laughs> did she say more than like one sentence? That was her first mistake. No one likes it when women talk. I think she even says yeah. something like that. Yeah, I think it's, it's a very Ursula thing where she's just like, nobody wants the girls to talk. Like, Give me your voice. Stop talking. <laughs> Early inspiration for Ursula. Yep. Little known fact. The second Mrs. De Winter in the book talks a lot about the class system there <sighs> and how even though she is a companion to this lady. And a guest. Yeah, and a hotel. guest at the hotel. The sir, the like, even the waiters in the restaurant treat her as though she's lower than they are by giving her like subpar food and stuff like that. I feel like some of that could have been overcome if she was just a little bit more confident in herself. But also going into a situation where you know little about about it and you're unfamiliar, you're in an unfamiliar country. She's you're going to be insecure, and then people kind of vibing off that and preying on it almost. Mm-hmm. You're not going to really find a lot of moments for confidence and maybe this is like maybe this reflects like sex working as well but people back then were more willing if they were of a higher class to give those people more respect than the people they were paying to accompany them yeah well yeah because they weren't i guess they couldn't have afforded to be there themselves yeah the only reason they were there is because this rich person wanted them there oh absolutely totally get that so they ranked much lower yeah so that's one reason when Max starts to pay her some attention and all of a sudden the waiters and the doormen and everybody else start treating her a little bit better because she's now friends with this person. Mm -hmm. A whole new world has opened up to her and I think that's part of the allure of him as well. Also, can we talk about her eating the scrambled eggs for lunch? Was that a thing? Like, to have scrambled eggs for lunch? I have scrambled eggs for lunch. You, you do? Want, yeah. Don't no. judge. Well, no, no. No I'm judging. I'm judging, but it's like, but at this resort, it's like, hello, madam, what would you like for lunch? Scrambled eggs? It's not judging necessarily. It's just an odd lunch choice to me. But then she doesn't even eat it. But you also don't really like eggs. I don't like eggs, but still, I find the choice of just a singular plate of only scrambled eggs as an odd lunch option. No toast or anything. At a restaurant. At home, that's different. <laughs> now, I'm gonna go to IHOP, be like, or not IHOP, Applebee's or Chili's, scrambled eggs. <laughs> Maybe back then brunch wasn't a thing yet, and she's just like, I really want some eggs, but I feel rude asking for French toast as well. <laughs> so like, I'll do, but also, she was super, super nervous because this very rich, wealthy, rich, wealthy, that's redundant. Wealthy man had asked her to come eat with him, so she was probably nervous out of her mind and just maybe said the first thing she could think of and then didn't bother there to eat any Eggs! <laughs> Eggs! Well, and also think about her insecurity and that probably was one of the cheaper things so she oh, wasn't, yeah. I didn't think about that. you know, that spending too. a lot of money on her employer's credit and... Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. 
that's a good point. No, I just found that I've just it just one of those things just piqued my interest. It's like interesting eggs. But she also said something during that conversation at the lunch table. She says if she said her father only painted trees like this or only this certain tree and that he said if you can find one person place or thing that's perfect you stick to it and i thought that that was a very telling characterization yeah i thought that was a very telling thing about um about mrs the second mrs de winter because i think that she sees like the situation that kind of unfolds is perfect why wouldn't you want that right mm-hmm. and that may be a very superficial observation but just that line stuck out to me uh, the line that stuck out to me during, I guess it's technically their first date, sure. is uh, she kind of makes a joke about how she's a companion. She's like, in the dictionary, it's a friend, it's a friend of the bosom. And she kind of <laughs> giggles a little bit. And I'm like, I relate to this so much. Yeah. I was like, boobs. <laughs> no, that's great. But then, and then they're, um, and no, this was when I kind of, because if you notice on Laura's tabs, when she had her pull, it pulled up, it had Evan Peters from Hotel, like specific screenshots of him. Because I feel like at points, Laurence Olivier kind of looks like him. Like they look kind of similar. Oh, they do. A little bit. Because I was going, this dude looks like somebody. And then I had Laura pull up the pictures and it was Evan Peters. So she also, when they go on the drive, that's a little bit later after Miss um, Van Hopper gets her cold and has to have her chocolate with her medicine and all that kind of stuff because why wouldn't you but he also throws her like puts her rack and i'm jumping all over the place but he puts her rack her tennis rack because she goes down to play tennis takes her rack puts it behind the bushes could that not fit in the car well he can't have her baggage hanging her out poor, in his i can't have your poor tennis racket so yeah, like i'm car. sorry there's only room enough for my baggage yeah. my emotional baggage oh, in this car things for the movie oh <laughs> No, but she really sticks her foot in her mouth with that drowning comment when they're on the, the cliffside. And she says, says something about drowning. And he's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, she says, I never have a fear of drowning. He's like, great. Sure. Great. That's great. That doesn't bring anything up for me. But I feel like he's also being super sensitive about it because. Well, yeah, because he's being a typical privileged white male who's not dealing with his problems because of toxic masculinity. And he's holding on to it. So everything's triggering him. <laughs> mental health is still stigmatized imagine when it was like in the 1940s oh yeah especially isn't this like around the beginning of world war ii yeah yeah stiff upper lip and all that (laughs) and it's england and they don't talk about their feelings they don't have feelings now well they have feelings but they don't talk about their feelings now (laughs) it's impolite yeah it's like, like I don't want to burden you. It's like, but I have some trauma, but it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But yeah, we haven't mentioned that she is alone in the world. Her mother and father are both gone. She has no brothers and sisters, apparently no aunts and uncles or anything. So she's just kind of at the mercy of... Van Hopper. Yeah. Miss Van Hopper and whatever her limited experience of the world offers her. And she's only supposed to be around 20. Is that correct? Yeah, she's in her early... She's either 20 or in her early 20s. Oh, my gosh. That'd be... I couldn't imagine that. That would be so scary. Yeah. And like you said, in a foreign country... Surrounded an overbearing woman. Yeah, sur- surrounded by people that think she's garbage. <laughs> exactly. I don't even Great. know how I would. I don't know how I deal with that. Well, I feel like that now most of the time, alone around the people that think I'm garbage. Yeah. Now I'm in my early thirties and I'm like, I am garbage, yeah, and I everyone else is like, you're right. <laughs> I look in the mirror and I don't think it. I know it. <laughs> I am trash. <laughs> 
So what happens next, Laura? So what does happen next? Oh, okay. So Mrs. Van Hopper gets better, and she says that, I hope you enjoyed your tennis lessons. You should be ready for Wimbledon by now, because you've had, like, three lessons. Well, yeah, she was doing things that she enjoyed. She had to burn it somehow. Yes. And then she gets a telegram (laughs) saying that her daughter is engaged, so they obviously have to pack in a flurry and leave on the noon train or boat or something uh, the noon train boat yeah <laughs> oh that train boat should be here anytime now they're taking a duck boat from <laughs> france to new york well no they wanted to get the most of the sites you get some local history <laughs> some facts in the beginning of world war ii just taking a duck boat from the south of france to new york city like can you imagine just like a huge steam boat or like a steamship just like passing by this duck boat like in the middle of the atlantic just like oh my god so i'm guessing okay i don't know why because it, it doesn't seem weird to me but also it feels weird to me that she's like my daughter's engaged we need to pack everything and go because it's like, I understand she wants to be with her daughter to celebrate and probably start making arrangements. But also, like, you literally got the telegram and you're like, I'm out. Yeah, you couldn't even wait till the next day. Literally. Yeah, yeah but that, one of the, that scene where um, she's trying to get a hold of Maxim before they leave, I feel is a wonderful example of how Hitchcock can build tension around things that shouldn't have to be that tense. Because, like, you're like, oh, my God, will they get, will she get a hold of him? Will she see him? Well, it's, it's crazy because it's also reminiscent of romantic comedies. Mm. Like, at the very end of romantic comedy, it's just like, these two may never see each other this again. Miss. <laughs> or what is it? It's, yeah, she keeps, like, narrowly missing him. Like, he's mm-hmm. singing in the shower when the phone's ringing and all of this, these things. So, you know that something's going to happen because you're at the beginning of the movie. So, mm-hmm. you know that something's going to work out. But also, you're like... Will they? Will it? Well, and it's such a credit to Joan Fontaine that she can play off those small moments but make so much out of them. Oh, yeah. A girl Mm -hmm. can make drama where there is none. (laughs) Just like me! Wow! I can relate. And this sets up for later in the movie the fact that she can't even tell Mrs. Van Hopper, oh, just a second, I need to make this phone call. She is in the middle of ringing him and Mrs. Van Hopper says we have to go so instead of you know continuing on with her conversation just a second Edith yeah she just (laughs) hangs up the phone and this is her whole life she's gambling on she's like I'm never gonna see this dude again because in reality they'd leave and she wouldn't yeah but yet she doesn't have any assertiveness at all to say I will be right there she just is kind of blundering through this whole thing. Well, literally, her breaking point is when they're about to get in the car, and she's like, I'm just going to go see if they can, I can send a forwarding address for this book that I lost. I'm doing quotation marks with my hands, because there was no book. Podcasting, the visual medium. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and so she uses that as a way to get back in to go to his room. Which was a very bold thing for her to Oh yeah, do. you did not do that. It's a bold thing in general, yeah. but then you add her character into it, and that's that's incredibly brave of her to just say goodbye. Yeah, complete departure from what we've come to know of her. Mm-hmm. So it's very much she's she knows this is a break, make or break moment. It's like it, it's it's now or never. I got to do it. 
So, but she has several of those moments in the film because mm-hmm. she lets a lot happen where she'll let it go, let it go, or she won't react or she won't do anything until it gets to the point where there's no other option or she's at her breaking point. Then she makes the decision. Mm-hmm. But she waits until she's been pushed so far that she can't hardly take well, it Well, she anymore. gets pushed so far that there is no other choice. Yeah. So she has to literally be pushed, like goaded into this choice a little bit. And so she goes up to his room and he's having breakfast delivered and she tells him that they're leaving. And he kind of does this sad melt into a chair thing. Brooding. Yeah. Brooding again. More brooding. And so he says, I'm going to get dressed. I'll be just a minute. Would you prefer New York or Manderley? And she's all like, don't ask me that question. That's not funny. (laughs) I wave my hands around a lot for those of you who can't see it. Again, podcasting, visual medium. Which is literally everyone except the three of us. (laughs) And she also has this line that I think is just hilarious because it kind of shows her youth. Mm -hmm. Where she says, we have to go to New York. I'm going to hate it. I know that I will be unhappy and hate it there. Well, it just sounds like a sullen little kid that's like, I don't want to. I hate it. I hate it. I'll never be happy again. You ate my Pop-Tart. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I love when he's just kind of casually, nonchalantly, like, getting dressed in the bathroom. Like, hey, let's get married. Da, 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 da. And she's over here, this girl that comes from humble beginnings, low social ranking, that never dreamed of being put in the position of marrying a wealthy man and having her own house. One that she visited as a child or saw as a child. Mm -hmm. So like her face just plays everything so perfectly Mm -hmm. because it's almost, it's too much. It's more than she could ever dream of. So she can't even fathom it. Well, and his proposal is so romantic. He says, I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. That must have meant something different back then. Because if someone called me that now, I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. Say what? (laughs) I think the British used that term a lot. Yeah, I... I think uh, it's also a romantic comedy trope where the woman is just, like, so focused on, like, her own thing and just, like, I'm never going to see you again. And I just know I'm going to hate not being around you. And he's trying to get to his point And she's like, don't tease me. I'm never going to see you again. He's just like, I am trying to ask you to marry me. <laughs> Listen. Listen. <laughs> Use your <laughs> ears. <laughs> You're listening ears and focus. <laughs> You're right. I never noticed how many romantic comedy elements there are in this. That yeah. just completely went over my head. <laughs> no, that's an interesting perspective because I didn't get that either. But but it does because, yeah, he, she's all in her head like, oh, my gosh. Uh, and he's like, uh, yeah, let's get married. <laughs> and so Hello. he asks Mrs. Van Hopper to come up to his room, which she was all freaked out about leaving. And then all of a sudden demeanor changes and she's like oh yes mr de winter <laughs> no and i that whole scene where maxim's on the phone with the front desk to get van hopper up to the room joan fontaine or miss de winter the second miss de winter soon to be winnie two <laughs> winnie two two dw <laughs> she's just sitting there completely like focused on him on bated breath because she does not she her future hangs in the balance of this and he is literally shoving toast in his mouth <laughs> right licking his fingers and telling her not to forget how he takes his tea and coffee yeah he's just like this is every day she's like my whole life is gonna change <laughs> i'm in love with you <laughs> <sighs> it's just like the difference in demeanors and how they're acting is so funny to me in that moment So there's a point where Max goes down to get her luggage and Mrs. Van Hopper is talking to her, telling her how 
she is over her head and there's no way that she'll be able to be mistress of Manderley. But previously when Max was in the room, she was like, oh yes, I'll make all the arrangements, blah, 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 and like so nice. And it makes me wonder why, well, I not really wonder, but still I'm going to ask the question. Why are women so much nicer to men? Especially older women. Like, I know this was at a different time, but she was so nice to him and she's such a bitch to her. Part of it comes Why? back down to that class thing of well, yeah. he's wealthy and, you know, this little girl from nothing that she was paying to take care of her. I know, but I feel like even it would be a different situation if it was a man. I mean, it wouldn't have been a male companion, but if it had have been a male that she was traveling with and it had, that situation had been reversed, I feel like she would have behaved totally differently. And again, it's been a while since I've watched the movie, but uh, in the book, she uh, is... Van Hopper is insisting on, like, being at the wedding, and yeah. uh, Maximus is just like, no, we're we're eloping, and then we're going, like, right on our honeymoon. And we're good. She, <laughs> and she's offended that she's not going to be involved in that, so mm-hmm. she takes her anger out on the narrator. Okay. Because she's weaker. <laughs> yeah, it just, it was just, I've been watching a lot, I watched uh, Red Table with Jada Pinkett Smith, and they were talking about the differences in, they were talking about the racial divide between um, women, but then they were talking about, it's like, well, why are we so easy, why is it easier to forgive a man than a woman? And so that just, when I watched that scene, it made me think of that again. And it's like, why is it? Why is it that she was more apt to be, you know, cruel or rude to the woman, and she was all smiles and sunshine for Max? It's that inherent sexism that Mm -hmm. most people are just kind of brought up with which was especially worse in that time but it still is prevalent today where women defer to men Mm -hmm. and then because of course she wasn't going to show her displeasure to Mr. De Winter again like you said the only person left to take it out on was the second Mrs. De Winter and it's also a theme of what's on the surface doesn't necessarily match what's on the inside and that even extends to basically a comic relief character like Mrs. Van Hopper, mm-hmm. where she's just like surface, oh yes, this is gossip, gossip, blah, blah, blah. And then to her, she's like, listen. <laughs> the fangs come out. <laughs> yeah, because she was so like, you know, we've got to go. We're leaving at noon. And then she says, oh, well, this girl doesn't have a mother, so I'll forget my daughter. <laughs> yeah my trip so that I can work as her mother and get her dress and everything and yeah but then once she realizes she won't be a part of that yeah Mm -hmm. it changes also just a side note if social stature were still a thing I would be screwed same I would like oh my god (laughs) like I'd walk into the room and they'd just be like oh give her the bad chips and salsa (laughs) I don't know Don't even scramble her eggs. (laughs) Just give them to her raw. She doesn't know any different. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be a companion and you and Carl would be living in some... Squalor. No, no, y'all would be domestic servants. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like Downton Abbey. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. That's depressing. Maybe you might be head housekeeper one day. Ooh, 
in a dream. <laughs> I'm already head housekeeper here. <laughs> yeah, so we get through this really nice exchange between her surrogate mother who, you know, tells her that she's not good enough and she's not going to make it and he does she doesn't know why he chose her and she in another moment of strong will says i think you need to leave now yeah because the way she delivers that line she's like i think you need to leave you're going to miss your train but it's just like f you (laughs) it's like it's one of those cases of say what you want to say but use this line (laughs) Mm -hmm. then they go and they get married and he doesn't even buy her a dress to be fair i wrote in my notes she wouldn't care if she was wearing a burlap sack no, I know that. She's like, I don't care. I'm rich. No, I don't think that's what she's thinking. But she's like, I'm in love. And like, he's shoving flowers in my face. Like, so many flowers. They forget the marriage license and they basically have to drop it out of the window for him to catch. Yeah, because they can't go back upstairs. <laughs> Dignified. <laughs> well, it's also, it's strange. It's like the first time he's really excited and happy. So he's like, we're getting married now. You don't need a dress. <laughs> right now. <laughs> Drop the marriage license from the window. <laughs> Yellow. <laughs> but like literally she's crushed when he buys all the flowers. Like he's just like grabbing them out of the woman's hand and then like shoving them in her face. Like look at all these flowers. Just like pressing them up and she's like smothering in these flowers. Oh, it's so lovely. And then we had Demanderly. Yeah. It, and then it starts raining. Yeah. In that part, because she's cold already, and then it starts raining. I'm like, this girl doesn't even know what's going to happen. And there's no top on the car. It's, it's one of those lovely old convertibles, which, how did they keep seats from getting ruined? They must have had a garage. But, I mean, you're driving out in, you know, the lovely English countryside where it rains, you know, every ten minutes. He's rich. He can pay people to reupholster the seats. I'll get new seats every day. <laughs> uh, I have legitimately wondered that about these old convertibles. Well, they probably took the car into the garage, toweled it off. I think the car's fine. Also, how do you, it's England, how do you not get pneumonia in that car? Literally. Yeah, I'm more another... concerned with that. I was like, how is that only the second Mrs. De Winter if he drives in the rain so much? Like, how, is, how is he still alive? Yeah, I feel like we should be on the second Mr. De Winter, too. So, right off the bat, she is overwhelmed by the house. Well, yeah, because it's huge. And then she walks through the front door and she walks in. And then, from her perspective, it sh- the camera shifts. And then you see all of these people just staring at you because you're seeing it from her eyes. And it's like, oh, okay. Cool. This is a little trick that Hitchcock did. The maid Danvers wasn't in the shot with the rest of the with movie. the rest of the staff, but then she just kind of appears out of nowhere, and he wanted to do that to make her more of a like dark, mysterious. She can just like spring up Operate. out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I just wanted to be in here, so I smoked in. Yeah. <laughs> and Danvers we get, out. Our first introduction to her is this nice close-up that where she just kind of is this imposing presence that fills the entire screen. In the book, she's described as having uh, the face of a skeleton. Fun! So, you know when the guy says she's not an oil painting? That's what that means. Because, like, an oil painting is soft and pretty. (laughs) And she is not. She's allegedly. Hard and bony and angular and mean. Severe. (laughs) Gosh. No, but I feel like this is a good time to bring this up, that when she's, when Danvers sees the second Mrs. De Winter, this is worst case scenario. And I find that not funny, but it, but it kind of 
it is a little bit out of context, just because getting into the story later, we'll find out what a fan Danvers is of the late Mrs. De Winter. And to have this girl that is of low social class coming in and filling the footsteps or filling the shoes of this great lady is literally the nightmare of nightmares for her. And I also find it funny that the second Mrs. De Winter's wing of the house is literally the opposite of the late Mrs. De Winter. And it's just that draw the comparison again. It's like literally the opposite has to be on the other side of the house. And again, it's the other gothic sort of thing where, you know, that's the haunted part of the house. We mustn't go there. <laughs> you mustn't go into the last wing. <laughs> I thought that the whole time. You must never go there. It's like, was there a rose? Danvers just like looking over the rose. Don't touch it. No, because I kind of was just watching this scene because the whole thing is so overwhelming because you're really in the shoes of the second Mrs. De Winter. And re-watching it again with the information, just kind of thinking about where she came from in life and her beginnings and how, until she got married, how she was treated, how overwhelming that would be. She had no clue what she was walking. Well, she knew what she was walking into, but she had no clue how to approach it. And Maxim had no concept of the fact that she didn't know what she was doing or she, that she wouldn't. I don't think he cared either. No, I don't think he did either. It's kind of like, this he, is woman stuff. He's like, I don't care about social structure or gender things. You, you want to marry me? Let's go. <laughs> yeah. He's like, these things don't affect me, so we don't have to worry about them. It doesn't matter if it affects you. Well, in the one scene where he gets so upset and he's like, why are they coming to me about this? They should be talking to you. And she's like, dude, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I wanted her to say. Maybe not just like that, but I wanted to be like, I don't know what to do, Maxim, darling. But then in the scene where um, Danvers is kind of showing her around the house and showing her her bedroom and that shot when they're walking down the hall and Mrs. the second Mrs. De Winter is walking and then Danvers is literally like a dark cloud just looming behind her. Like, I am your insecurity. <laughs> Follow you. <laughs> the number of times that Danvers is just like a dark silhouette or a dark shadow. I hadn't really thought about it before, but that's so much of her character that while Rebecca is a looming presence there, she is also just kind of, like you said, a dark cloud that kind of follows around. Well, I feel like she's kind of another way that Rebecca still has a hold on the house, mm -hmm. too. Or a hold on her, on her surroundings, I guess. Well, I don't know if we want to go into this automatically, but in the book, um, Danvers is a little bit older, mm -hmm. and it's kind of insinuated in the book that the, uh, she had been with Rebecca kind of like ever since she, grew, you know, ever since like she grew up or her teen years. But there are also in the book sort of like undertones of lesbian, you know, love romance story stuff. And that was something that they couldn't put much into the movie because of the Hayes Code. Mm -hmm. um, that's also why they had to change the ending of the movie from what it is in the book, mm -hmm. because the censors wouldn't allow them to have a lesbian character. So they did it in the way that they could by having her talk about her underwear a lot and talking about how she would brush her hair when she got out of the bath. How do and... you know if this woman's a lesbian? She talks about underwear a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about my former mistress's panties. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I mean, she does. She makes a big deal about her no, underwear. Yeah. Well, I know, but but it's also the way that Judith Anderson does it, too, mm -hmm. that conveys it. Because she's just... 
I told Laura, I was like, oh my gosh, Danvers is getting to live out her full fandom, like for mm-hmm. Rebecca in the, in the moment she's showing later in the story when she's showing the second Mrs. De Winter her her wing of the house. And yeah, she's just like, she's touching it like it's a part of, like it's part of Rebecca. And yeah, the way she's doing it, there's so much, there's so much there. And it communicated everything we just said. Mm-hmm. And not a healthy ro- lesbian romance no. at all. No, no. I, there was some toxic. Yeah, that undertones. is very toxic. <laughs> toxic undertones. But I don't know if Rebecca had a good relationship with anyone. It seemed like people were more something that she used for whatever she wanted but again like people were just like she was beautiful she was great so uh when the revelation comes later that she was horrible it's so shocking because everyone is just like she's almost sainted Mm -hmm. the way they talk about her yeah so that in the end he's like i hated her i was shocked because i did not see that coming i didn't think that he hated her i that, that was yeah they did that very well also, going back just a little bit, when they're having breakfast or whatever meal that they're having in the dining room for the first time, also awesome for a rug. And she's just like smiling at him from like six feet away or whatever. They don't just have one chandelier. They have three. That's too many. Well, they're like, no, no, no. One's not enough. We must have three. That's super rich. I don't know if that was a painted scene or if that was a real scene. I think it could have been because it didn't, I kind of. Didn't see how they all could be there grouped like that. Because they were all different, too. Yeah, they were, which was very strange. Who designed that? I know most of the ceilings in there were painted because they were all on a soundstage and you don't usually build a ceiling. Well, a lot of times, wouldn't they take film and lay it over, like do an overlay of something? That's kind of what it looked like to me with those chandeliers. It's kind of why it caught my eye. And that might have been what they did. I don't know. Maybe I'm just focusing on stupid details. <laughs> but also, Hitchcock plays with shadow so beautifully. Because uh, there's so many scenes where, like, the faces are partial in shadow. But then there's these scenes where the second the Sister Winter is walking up the stairs. And you can kind of see the grating from something that's creating, like, this vine mm-hmm. thing. And it just sets the mood. I don't know what it is or what the mood is, but it's set. And I feel it. Well, one of the scenes that I love where he does this is they're watching the videos of their honeymoon. Mm -hmm. And she has the line where she says, that's why you married me, so there'd be no gossip about me. And Max stands in front of the camera. And almost all of his face is in shadow except for this one eye. And both of her eyes are completely lit, but the rest of her face is kind of more shadowed. So you really get that deer in headlights effect. Right. And he looks like some sort of weird... Menacing. Yeah. Scary, ghosty skeleton thing with this just evil eye staring at her. And then there's also another scene where she's talking to his sister. Mm -hmm. And what they did was, it would have been like a green screen nowadays, but Joan Fontaine was sitting in front of a blank screen and they projected the footage of the other woman onto the screen and when she turns her face away it goes black you're talking about mrs lacy yeah mrs Mm -hmm. lacy she goes black and it's like the stark contrast of Mm -hmm. joan fontaine's face against this black screen so that's how they achieved that effect and i mean it's 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 so good yeah Mm -hmm. going back where we are in the movie a little bit this is when i think We've gone to the part, we've gone past it a little bit, but, but I think we're at the part where the second Mr. Winter 
is in her morning room where the first Mrs. DeWinter would do all of her correspondence. And Danvers comes in and is telling her like, well, this is what she would do. and This is what she would do. And here's the menu for lunch. And I need to know about the sauce because Rebecca was really particular about her sauce and just laying all of this responsibility and just overloading her. And what I got from that scene was that Danvers knew how insecure and out of her element she was. And she just wanted to mess with her and just like pile it on even more. Like mm-hmm. maybe she'd run out the door. And again, obsessed with Rebecca. Yeah. It's like she was really particular, particular about sauces. Was she... What was her favorite? And I want to know. What are our options? I know. First of all, I'm like, ooh, a menu. I would love to see Mrs. Danvers Tumblr all about Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like re-plugs. Just pictures upon pictures upon pictures. Like her favorite food. Like her favorite menu. Oh my gosh. What would that be even be called? Like, look at that Tumblr. All about Rebecca. But yeah, okay, so we're getting to lunch. Yeah, the way that he drops, the way Maxim drops, like, oh, my sister and her husband are coming by to have lunch. By the way, my sister's really direct and will tell you if she doesn't like you. Have fun. (laughs) Which at least that's one person you can trust. No, I have it written down. Like, she is a queen because she's really direct with the second Mrs. DeWinter, but it's very honest and honestly probably one of her best allies besides Crawley because Crawley's really nice to her. But she's very honest and she's like, oh, no, your hair would look terrible like that. But she also has really nice things to say as well. Yeah. It's very clear that uh, she she likes her. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny that whenever I go back to reread the book, somehow I always forget about Maxim's sister and brother-in-law. <laughs> but when they reappear, I'm like, oh, yeah, I love these people. They're, They're the best. <laughs> and like... His brother-in-law's face when he's asking her what she does. That was what I was going to bring up. (laughs) Well, first, he tells, he's asking her all these questions, and she's like, no, I don't do this. And he says, do you dance? And she goes, not really. And he goes, well, you must teach me to rumba. It's like, well, you're going to learn, because I need to learn. Mm -hmm. And he asks her, do you ride? And she says, no. And he goes, do you ride regular or side saddle? Oh, that's right. You just told me you don't ride. What do you do? And then he tells Max, I'm trying to figure out what your wife does. And then she asked, he asks if you don't like sailing, do you? No. Oh, that's good. <laughs> but his face, he just, like, his, he covers his mouth and his eyes go open. And it's almost like, you know, a, a little kid that's like, oh, um. Well, it's like there's no subtlety to it. It's not like, okay, just let it play off and no one will notice it. It's like, nope. <laughs> Let's make a big spectacle. <laughs> yeah. And he obviously doesn't listen to anything that anybody is saying to him. He's just kind of in his own little bubble. <laughs> ah, the privi- privileged wealthy people that don't care about what they say. <laughs> it's funny how those two characters are paired up together because he's just, it kind of reminds me of my grandparents, where mm-hmm. he's just kind of like in his own head, kind of like thinking, and she's just like direct and talking and she's like i have opinions <laughs> she's like no no no, i don't like that but i like you <laughs> but that your hair is terrible <laughs> but what is it because i just have in my notes wait what whole story or what 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 whole story and her face because was that at the end when mrs Lacey's leaving and she's like oh i do hope you'll be happy and something about the whole story and just her face afterwards uh, joan fontaine she's like it's like <laughs> we were like wait what whole story? Yeah. Like, that's what she's thinking. Was that what it was? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just some of the expressions she can pull, you really get a sense of how confused she is. Because no one is telling her anything. Nobody 
tells her anything. Maxim's treating her like a kid because literally in this next scene, they go for a walk. And she says, I'm going to go get my coat. And he said, oh, no, we'll bring you one out of the flower room. And she says, do I have to put it on? And he said, yes, this is how you have to take care of children. It's like, that's creepy. This is your wife, not a child. You weirdo. (laughs) But yeah, and then Jasper gets to go on a walk. Take some of the fat off him. Because we haven't even talked about Jasper. Jasper. It's the dog. He's so cute. And he does not like the new Mrs. DeWinter. They'll they'll eventually come to love each other, I hope. He goes on the walk with them, and he starts going down to the beach. And Maxim is like, no, 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 no. Don't go there. Don't go there. Nope. Not going. And she's like, oh, let's go. And he's already like... Kind of stiff and rigid, like, I don't want to, but here we go. (laughs) And so she discovers this little cabin that's down there that's full of all this beautiful stuff. And no, but let's talk about how she gets into the cabin. Uh Because it's like the dog runs away. Maxim's like, oh, it's fine. He'll find his way back. Don't mind all of these treacherous cliffs and waters and stuff. The dog's fine. (laughs) It's like, thanks, dude. But so she goes to find the dog. And he's at the threshold of this cabin. And the door, like, creaks open, and here comes this guy. And we later realize he's harmless, but at the time, he's kind of scary-looking. And she's like, oh, yeah, let me just find some rope to tie my dog up with. So she goes into the house that the creepy man just came out of. Who does that? Basically trapping herself in there if he comes after her. Literally, it's like, just carry the dog back. (laughs) That was my, I literally wrote, just carry the dog. (laughs) I don't know. When your dog gets away from you and you've been down, he, sometimes my dog is like, nope. I mean, that's true. I was just, I just remember thinking, I was like, don't go in there. Because like the first time you watch it, I didn't know who he was or like what part he was playing. He was just kind of like, hello, and kind of scary. And so I didn't know what was happening. And so I'm just like, just take the dog, run. Yeah, I think in the book, it's clear that he's harmless yeah i think like alfred hitchcock likes to take liberties yeah it's kind of sad because poor ben he's such a sweet sweet person but they really make him look scary in the beginning and i felt really bad that i felt that he was scary because he's really sweet i know but anyway so she gets so she gets out of the house ben is not bad he's not gonna hurt her anything like that he's harmless and she gets the doggy and is like pulling him across the beach and up the stairs <laughs> and, and maxim just takes off had left her and he was all mad and pissy and i wrote down maxim needs to communicate his feelings because he's being a grumpy dick <laughs> like for like his mood shifts like the cold english sea <laughs> he is basically kind of being emotionally abusive to her at this moment because well, she's asking him what's wrong and he's just Blaming her and all over the place and driving her crazy. Well, yeah, because he's not dealing with his own feelings and yeah. what his... Go ahead. His own trauma. Yes. And also, it's crazy because we're going to get to it, but he was also emotionally manipulated and abused. Yeah. Which yeah. is crazy. But yeah, his minichips are exhausting. I would have been done... Well, first of all, he never would have married me because I would have been too loud and too upfront with him. I would have been his sister, which is perfect because she's Mrs. Lacey. Change your name to Lacey DeLacy. Well, yeah, Carl's getting a Christmas present. <laughs> it's a name change. Surprise, you have a new identity. Santa came early. <laughs> we are now the DeLacy's. That'd be so cool. Lacey DeLacy. No, but yeah, I would have been that girl. <laughs> but yeah, because he is so tiresome. I, I got tired of that real quick. 
Well, and one of the interesting things, too, is he was actually really mean to her. Um, Laurence Olivier wanted... Um, oh, he was a bore to her. He was terrible. Yeah, and not, like, boring, but, like... No, like, bore the animal. Like, yeah. mean. Um, he <laughs> wanted Vivian Lee to get the part, which we were actually able to see her screen test in the special features on the DVD. And while she was good, of course, she's Vivian Lee, she just would not have been right for the part. Well, no, and I think it was, Casey, you said this, it was like, you can tell when a strong person is playing m- more meek and mild, mm-hmm. and that was very apparent. It's like, she was doing a very good job, but it was very much like, I'm being meek and mild, aren't I? <laughs> Look how meek and mild I am. <laughs> how meek and mild I can be. <laughs> yeah, what made her so great as Scarlett O'Hara was what made her not right for this part. Yeah, mm-hmm. but so, Laurence Olivier was punishing Joan Fontaine for getting the role over Vivian Lee, which she had no control yeah. over. And then Alfred Hitchcock played into that because Alfred Hitchcock is a dick. I mean, she's yes. like, yeah, no one likes you. Oh, yeah, he completely <laughs> isolated her to make, and and that's what probably why the performance is so good, but it's like, at what cost do you get that? Yeah, I don't think that's worth um, any performance. Emotional abuse <laughs> yeah. and manipulation. No, 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 no. There was a story similar to that about the movie Black Swan, where the director tried to play um, Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis off of each other by telling them that, oh, the other one's doing better. Oh, I don't like their, I don't like your performance as well as theirs. That's some reality TV producer bullshit. But (laughs) they then went up to each other and were congratulating each other on doing such a good part, and it actually made them better friends and closer on set. But don't be an asshole and try to manipulate well, people's feelings. That feels like a very male director ploy. I've never, I don't know of a woman director that I've heard doing that. No, because risking the emotional health of your people doesn't get you a better performance. Mm-hmm. And even if it does, even if it does. Well, yeah, there's still no cause you damaged to do that. a person. You've hurt someone. Yeah. Is that really worth it? And I feel like a man would be willing to be like, yeah, sure. And a woman would be like, no, no. what's wrong with you? This is a movie. Get your head out of your ass. This is like, uh, what, at most, uh, it was four to six months shoot. Then it's like summer camp, and then you leave. Yeah. But the memories are forever. And the trauma <laughs> is forever. <laughs> Literally. The performance only goes for so long. My therapy costs are going to go up because of you. <laughs> it's like, are you paying this bill, Hitchcock? No, you're dead. Oh, when she goes in, she's helping Crawley lick stamps and put them on the um, envelopes. And she's like, what about this? And what about this? Did she do this? 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 And she, it's just like the questions are rapid fire about Rebecca. And I was like, girl, play it cool. Calm down. But she was just like rapid firing these questions at Crawley. Yeah, I, I get that, though, because yeah. uh, on the Enneagram, I'm a five. And that's the it, that's the type that's just like, I need knowledge and I need knowledge now. So what is this? What is it? an Enneagram? The Enneagram? Enneagram. It's, uh, it's pretty much like a personality type thing Mm. for example there are like nine types total you can also be like wings depending on like which way you kind of go in this like little circle okay so i'm a five wing four which means i love knowledge i need knowledge i like to kind of keep uh my friends uh separate in their own little groups i don't necessarily need all of them together i value my personal time but i'm also a wing four because that's the type that really values arts and creativity and drama and i I, (laughs) and sometimes i really like gossip and i'm like yes tell me your secrets tell me more (laughs) this fits into knowledge so an enneagram i'm gonna look that up 
that sounds really interesting. She wants the lowdown on Rebecca, and she and Crawley has proven himself trustworthy, mm-hmm. and he's very nice to her. And he gives her some information, but he's also said some very kind things to her. And I was like, she needed that. Girlfriend needed someone just to tell her, you're doing okay. Platonic male friends are the best. I really, you, I really appreciate that. Especially like doing this podcast and trying and focusing on women. When you find a male character that isn't a complete ass and, or isn't out to be a love interest. Mm -hmm. It is so refreshing. I love that. And in my personal life, I have several lovely platonic male friends yeah they're the best but yeah he's also very honest with her because she said she's like was she pretty and he's like honestly she was like one of the prettiest women i've ever seen like, yeah <laughs> when i read the book and uh i was curious and watched some clips from other adaptations uh where he's just like kind of reluctant to say that he's just like yeah she was <laughs> <laughs> no but i really liked that scene because it felt it felt like someone was there to be her friend because mm-hmm. there's just throughout this movie she does she feels isolated she feels overwhelmed and or that's the way she comes across to the to the viewer and so it was really nice just to see her get a moment of reprieve from that mm-hmm. really really sweet scene next comes the press right well she buys the new dress yeah that's what i'm saying oh, okay yes she has a line where she says she wishes she was 30 and dressed in black velvet or was it black black satin, satin. And with, like, pearls. And and he says, I hope you're never 30 and dressed in black satin. Which, dude's gonna get a shock in a few years, but... Surprise, um. women age two. <laughs> so she sees this dress in a catalog and she orders it. Because everybody's talking about how, oh, I can tell you don't care about your appearance. And, oh, why are you wearing this? And, oh, you need to do something with your yeah, hair. Yeah, so she tries to take matters into her own hands. She orders a new dress. She does something different with her hair. And what happens? He laughs at her. He literally laughs at her like she's a little kid playing dress up. It was so sad. And but the thing is that she kind of is. Literally. And I think that's what he means when he says, I hope... You're never like this. Please yeah. promise me you'll never wear pearls because he kind of recognizes that that's not who you are. No, she's not that's, that. Don't do not do that. And so that's why he's laughing at her. No, yeah. And it's like she's only, I feel like she's only making this these decisions out of insecurity because mm-hmm. everyone's telling her, oh, well, you're not this, you're not this, you're not this, Rebecca, 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 Marsha, Marsha, Marsha mm-hmm. type of thing. And so she's like, okay, well, this isn't really me, but I think it'll look good, so I'm going to wear it, and do you like it? (laughs) But also, she's growing up. Yeah, that's a major theme of mm -hmm. the book and the movie. And when, you know, we've been through this as women where we're trying on different identities and being like, is this me? No. Is this me? No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is her first attempt because she's never had any money to do anything before. Yeah. And he laughs at her first attempt. Yeah, I, I felt that. I felt that deeply. Yeah. In that scene. Although the, the, the roses like kind of tacked onto the boob area. Yeah, that was a crazy dress. I was like, and because it, it wasn't like it was placed any sort of way. It was just like, okay, random assortment of roses, boom, on the boobs. She needed help from Mrs. Lacey. She should have yes. been, girl, I need a dress. And then you could have had a montage of her trying on dresses. Yeah. <laughs> Breath could have been there too. Yeah. So it's like Breath and Mrs. Lacey are just there going, like shaking their head no. no. And when she puts on the one, they're like, like yes. yes. <laughs> I love this remake. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. Oh, yeah. Let's talk. 
But this whole scene is up and down because this is a scene where they're watching their honeymoon videos, which is so happy and sweet. But then we also have, is it Frith who comes in and says... Frith is the the older butler. Is that who comes in? I think so. And he says, we think that this younger servant has stolen this valuable statue out of the morning room and we need to talk to him. Do we even talk about that initially? That she... No. 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 Um, and she says, oh, I broke it. And she had hidden it in the back of a drawer because she was too scared to tell anybody that she broke this little statue thing. So Maxim calls in Danvers to get the whole mess straightened out. And again, she's treated like a child. It's like, naughty, naughty you, why didn't you tell us that you did this thing? It's like, you're a bad girl, you can't get in trouble. Tell them where to go and what to do. But again, another theme of this is uh, open communication and when it's necessary. <laughs> yes, yes. Communication and why it's important definitely factors into this movie. <laughs> no, but I thought it was so interesting watching this scene too and watching the face that Danvers puts on for Maxim. Kind of reminded me of Van Hopper, like the face she wore with mm-hmm. Maxim and with with um, Mrs. DeWinter, the second Mrs. DeWinter, because it's like she's wearing this face that's just maybe a skoosh more pleasant than what she gives the second Mrs. DeWinter, but the silent communication between DeWinter and Danvers, it's like they know what's being said, they know what what she's Mm -hmm. saying, but she's saying it nicely to Maxim, Mm -hmm. but then she's also just like staring her down. This is another scene where he plays with her emotions where it's up and down and up and down, and she's crying and saying, we have a happy marriage. And he says, well, if you think we do, then I guess we do. That's so messed up. Yeah, he's just all over the place, and she's saying, please tell me what I've done, and he won't say anything to her. Communication. Communication. Again. Marriage counseling. Yeah. Yeah. No, because he's so, like, maybe not in that scene necessarily, but, like, when she comes in in the dress, he's so condescending unbearably condescending and it's and just critiquing the way she looks but in that underhanded way and it was just so unpleasant to to witness and i remember thinking i just want someone to critique him which little do we know someone did in that moment i wanted someone to come in and be like you know what your hair looks stupid although Lawrence olivier is a very attractive man yeah not much is wrong yeah and then he's very good at brooding to go back to that you're brooding stupid it's not as broody as someone else's brooding and then do we get our favorite scene? Which one is our favorite scene? With the sandwiches. Oh, yes, because I because it was the tray that she, like, pressed or whatever, and the legs pop out, and she sets the tray down, and I literally wrote, I want one of those trays. Yes, bring the sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, because she's sitting there in this beautiful room, and she brings in this whole tray of, like, tea and cookies and stuff, and then she says, I'll be right back with the sandwiches. I'm like, yes, you will. And all I could think of was, this is what I've been waiting my whole life for, <laughs> for somebody to be like, I'm bringing you sandwiches I, and tea. But bringing you the food already. And then be like, oh, I'll be back with the sandwiches. Yeah. It's like I've been preparing my whole life to have a servant that brings me sandwiches. This is it. Yes. Bring the sandwiches. (laughs) Bring me more cookies. Yes. It's like I'm out of pastries. Please refill. Can you make me a sandwich made of cookies? Oh my God. Cookie sandwich. (laughs) Just like make, put the pastries in the middle of the cookies and just bring it to me. Then when um, she hears somebody coming. Oh, yeah, Favelle and Danvers. Or Jack. His first name's Jack. Jack. Jack Jack is easier. Jack. Favelle. Um, (laughs) Rebecca's cousin, and he's 
sneaking out of the house, but him and Danvers obviously know each other. Yes, and Mrs. DeWinter is hiding behind the door listening, and I wrote, I wrote down, Jasper's a narc, but we forgive him, because <laughs> he totally clues them in on where she's at. Because he's just like, hi, what you doing? Eavesdropping? I'm a dog. <laughs> hey, everybody, look what she's doing. Plus, I'm a dog. <laughs> Little did you know, also a dog. <laughs> They say, I would appreciate it if you wouldn't tell Max that I was here. Yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because you're like a Rebecca expert yes. on the show. Favel or Jack, is kind of painted as the villain. What do you think about that? He's more of a cad than a villain. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, there are a couple of options for villains here. Because the direct villain right now to our narrator is Danvers. Mm -hmm. But then there's also this underlying mystery of what happened to Rebecca. And especially in the movie, with the lighting of Maxim, it could be, oh, this could be bad, and she could have ended up in a bad situation. So with Favelle, he's just that ass who's, you know, kind of hitting on her. (laughs) Yeah, it's like he, out of everybody, he seems to be like the less of the threats, but also you feel kind of (laughs) Something's off there. And it's like, I don't like you, but at least you're open about who you are. It's like, you're not lying to me and you're telling me, like, what's happening. (laughs) These are things that I'm getting other places. But that said, I would not want to be in a room alone with you because I think you tried to grab my boob. Yeah, 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 got that. Like when he climbed through the window, I was like, oh, no, 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 you can stay out there. That's fine. So in a moment of strength, she goes up and into Rebecca's room. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's this amazing shot of Danvers behind this, um, like, screen of curtains. The sheer curtains. And she's just this dark silhouette. And then she, you know, comes comes through the curtains. She kind of looks like the Mrs. Butterworth bottle. (laughs) A little bit. Just a little bit. I can see that. But, yeah. Why do I want waffles now? (laughs) It's just such an ominous shot. Yeah, and she's speaking because she has a line, and the narr- I'll call her narrator because the second Mrs. DeWinter is getting too long. Yep. So narrator looks back, and she just sees this shadowy figure standing there just, like, watching her. And she'd come up with a reason for her to be in this room, which it's her house. Girl can be in the room anytime she wants. Yeah. But she'd opened a window and said, oh, the window was open. I came in to close it. Danvers like, no, it wasn't. And Danvers said, no, I closed the window when I was in here earlier. Which, fun fact, in that scene when she closed the window earlier, it was a puppet that was shot in the... Um, the bigger model, and there was a little puppet that they used to close the windows. Puppets! Puppet Denver's. <laughs> so she starts giving her the whole Rebecca tour, and this is like we talked about earlier when she was like, oh, here's all her underwear that was made by the nuns. and <laughs> Which makes sense. <laughs> that was why she was in the room earlier. She was snuggling her underpants. <laughs> yeah. And she lifts up this nightgown, this sheer black nightgown, and she goes... Have you ever seen anything so delicate? You can see my hand through it. Yeah, she's going to show off her fandom real hardcore. But I just loved it because the narrator's face, she's like, you can see my hand through it, and her face is just kind of appalled, and it's like, yes, Yes, I I can't see your hand. Oh, God. (laughs) The humanity. It's like, why is 
why was your hand in her nightgown? How do you know this? It's like, how many times have you done this? <laughs> and Danvers, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Danvers talks about how she um, embroidered this pillowcase for her and she leaves it on the bed and she hasn't moved a single thing and in the, the night, room. And the nightgown is folded between pillowcase that's put on her pillow. Yeah. When initially, when the narrator goes into the room, she's just kind of looking around and she like touches a breast, but almost like it has a static shock when she touches mm-hmm. it. She just kind of like barely touches it and then like draws her hand back. And then Danvers comes in and goes, oh, you've touched her brush and moves it back there. That's better. Just like <laughs> it's a like, fraction of an inch. She's memorized every detail because she's probably in there every day just like looking at everything. The number of fresh flowers that were in that room, there was probably six vases Full of freshly, beautifully arranged flowers for a room that nobody goes into. You guys uh, know the new slang Stan now, which is inspired by Eminem's uh, song Stan. Yeah, Stan. She is the OG Stan. Yes, she stands, Rebecca. She hardcore stands, Rebecca. Yep, yep. You say you stand like but do you One stand? Direction. But do you stand? Do you stand like Danvers? Do you snuggle underpants and fill the room with fresh flowers? It's like this woman's been dead a year and has more flowers in her room than I've had in my entire house ever. But it's yeah. the little victories. But do you stand like Danvers? Do you stand verse? Stand verse. Yes. Stanvers. Yes. T-shirts being made right now. Stanvers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Soon for sale on the Fatal Fins. Do you Stanvers? But I also, so I was curious because I was watching this and I felt a little bit like like an alien because I was like, what emotions is she having right now? But I wanted to get your opinion. So when she's going through the room and showing her all these things and like she's building up and just she's getting more horrified and horrified and crying. Mm-hmm. What do you think, what's happening with her right then? De Maurier said that when she was writing this, to her it was a psychological study of jealousy. Mm. So that's exactly what's happening. It's jealousy just kind of overwhelming her. Just like, I can't beat this kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, because I just, I wasn't quite sure, because it was a strong reaction. It was a strong emotion. And I wasn't quite sure what what it was, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because it's in the next scene where she calls Danvers into the morning room and clears out all of Rebecca's things from yeah. the writing desk. Because that, mm-hmm. that emotion is what pushes her to kind of take ownership of her of her space, you know, in whatever small way she does. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And doesn't she say, I'm Mrs. DeWinter now? Yeah, she yes. says, like, I am Mrs. DeWinter now, and this is how I'm going to run this house. I am the captain. <laughs> so I literally wrote, things are looking up, dot, 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 for now. <laughs> and then she convinces Max to have the masquerade ball yeah and he's like and she asks him what are you gonna dress up at dress up as and he goes oh i don't dress up it's my one privilege as host i'm like the one privilege maxim the one privilege but okay that's cool (laughs) and she proves that she actually can draw she's because she designs these amazing costumes yeah it's like no 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 joan of arc no 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 none of this none of this will work and Danvers suggests that she Kindly should. just comes in and ever so nicely suggests she should be this one portrait of a, I can't remember what it she was. She looks kind of like a Southern Belle. But she's a, but... she's a, she's a, a dis, or she's a ancestor. Yeah, she's right? an ancestor. Yes. Um, I think in the book she's Caroline DeWinter. That's, yeah, Caroline DeWinter. Yeah. But it's, but isn't, 
didn't she say it was that person and then it ended up being a different person or something? I don't recall. I do know that when she goes down the staircase, no one's focused on the an- on the ancestor at all. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. And then what did I say? Oh, so when Mrs. Lacey comes to the ball and she comes on her Viking lady costume, I was just like, yeah, it's Mrs. Lacey. <laughs> Get that wig. And, well, another thing that you said, because she goes upstairs to offer. to offer help, and she's you said that if Girl had have accepted help, then none of this would have happened. So that's what my wouldn't have always accept help from your girlfriends, because this all could have been avoided. Yep. <laughs> always accept help. So she comes down the stairs, and she is so excited. She looks amazing. It's so messed up. The, per- the costume is perfect, and everybody's staring at her. In horror yes Mm -hmm. and she doesn't know what she did mrs lacy says rebecca so here's my question was the painting of rebecca or was it actually a painting of uh an ancestor that rebecca just copied for her costume i think it was an ancestor i think it was an ancestor that rebecca copied okay so she had just worn the costume previously yeah because you know i understand why rebecca would put up a painting of herself in the house, but I don't understand why, um, especially since this is Manderley, this is Maxim's home. I don't understand why, especially after, you know, she died except to keep up appearances. I don't understand why he would keep up a constant reminder of her. Yes. I <laughs> guess in that no- prominent of a spot. Well, yeah, too. especially knowing his true feelings about her. Yeah. And also, I don't know if it's in the West Wing or not, but... If it's not the West Wing, I can for sure say that was not Rebecca. Well, I, yeah, I think it probably was from the narrator side of the house, yeah. so probably East. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it was just like outfit copying the ultimate act of betrayal. That's what I wrote. <laughs> Wearing the same outfit as the ultimate act of betrayal. Costume plagiarism. <laughs> Danvers got her. But no, because and then Danvers, like, when they're going, she's like, you knew, you knew. And she's like, yeah. And they, she just launches into this tirade. And the way she talks about Rebecca is like she, her, like Rebecca's her religion. Like you, mm-hmm. we say, Stanvers. Like that's her religion. She thought of her as a god. Like man nor woman could kill her. This only the sea could. Mm-hmm. And it's just it. It's yeah, Stanvers. And she tries to convince her to jump out the window yeah. into the courtyard and kill herself. Because she's so emotionally distressed that she's sitting there thinking about it. And Danvers is like behind her, going, "Yeah, you could do it. Yes, and." <laughs> she almost looks like she'd be ready to push her out if she'd just lean over just a tiny bit farther. But she is saved by the fireworks <laughs> and the shipwreck. <laughs> the accompanying shipwreck. Which, of course, busts up the party so everybody can try to go help save the sailors. God, how rude. Don't they know? Don't they know it was a party? And while this is going on, they find Rebecca's boat. And, oh gosh, there's Rebecca's body in the boat. The body that had previously been identified as Rebecca wasn't really her. <laughs> I just got, the poison is supposed to kill Cusco. The poison chose essentially to kill Cusco. Cusco's poison. From that, that poison? <laughs> yes! <laughs> but she's like searching around this boat. And like, I think the clock says it's like five or so, four or five in the morning. And she finds Crawley and she he's and he tells the narrator like all the time. And she's like, oh crap, this dude is going to be messed up. That's my very eloquent way of re- of restating the line. 
but I can't, but I'm like, you do not have to take on someone else, someone else's emotional trauma. That's I literally wrote that because it's just like, she feels that so intensely for him too. Cause she knows that what that must've done to him. So she goes into the little cabin and he's there. Mm-hmm. And this is when he tells her what actually happened to Rebecca. And this was this long monologue that you were talking about earlier with yeah. the shots um, where Hitchcock uses the camera to kind of be Rebecca. Yeah, it was it, it was completely it was a way to like do like the do 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 and like you're back in the scene kind of thing without doing all of that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the camera was Rebecca and it was following what her movements would have been. And then it comes to Maxim when she would have been over by Mac- Maxim. Basically, what happens is he knew that Rebecca wasn't a really great person while on their honeymoon, four days after their marriage. Um, On the exact spot that he first met the narrator, Rebecca told him all about her life. And you had a question about this. Yeah, because I was just, I kind of was writing down thoughts and um, questions. So he says that she tells him things that he will never repeat to another living soul. What do you think those things are? Because you both have read the book. So do you have a little bit more insight into what that could be? It actually doesn't even go into it in the book. Okay. So her background remains a mystery, but you can infer the type of person that she is based on how she's able to manipulate Maxim to stay in this marriage with her. Um, the, uh, you know, the fact that she basically sexually harassed Crawley <laughs> And uh, when she was caught with Favel by Ben, she basically threatened Ben, if you tell anybody, I'm going to make sure you end up in an asylum. Yeah. Just the worst person you could imagine. And completely self-serving, only her needs. And I assume she probably told him that she was bisexual, which would have been, you know, one of the worst things at that time. Yeah, when the movie was made, that would have been something. Yeah. So, yeah, and just her face when when he's recounting all of this to her, the narrator's face, is just, I was, like, trying to pinpoint, this is another time that I kind of felt like a robot. It was like, what are you feeling? Because she looks incredibly relieved or, like, happy almost. Like, mm-hmm. oh, so you don't love her. Like, almost like, oh, I I won, but maybe not that. But yeah. Kind of around that. It's like, oh, not all hope is lost. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. I think she feels, I won. You don't love Rebecca. You love me. I In this competition mm-hmm. between the two, mm-hmm. I won. I th- Yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. That, that kind of is what happens. She, It's this weird twistedness of just like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God you didn't love her. It's like, I can't imagine how much was pent, like, stress and tension was pent up in her. And to hear that, it was probably just like, oh, thank God. Only to be replaced by a new kind of stress. Yeah, because then as they're going through, he's talking about this last night that Rebecca was alive. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit more to that? So, basically, uh, Rebecca has him in the cottage. And in her monologue, she says, so here's the thing. I'm pregnant. It's not your baby, but I'm going to have this baby and it's going to take over Manderly when you're gone. And basically this is going to be my house and there's nothing you can do about it. And basically taunting him. Uh, And in the movie, she's so like distracted by her own stuff that she, you know, 
falls and hits her head or whatever. Yeah, she almost it's almost she goads him into killing her because she yeah. even says something about like don't you want to kill me or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And in the book he does kill her. Yeah. There's a gun nearby and like oh. in a crime of it's like in a rage and it's a crime of passion he just picks up the gun and shoots her through the heart. Wow. <laughs> Which they had to change for the movie because of the censors. They wouldn't let a woman be shot through the heart? Well, that. It was too violent. But also, I'm going to jump to the end a little bit. He gets away with it. Mm -hmm. So, in and in the movie, that couldn't happen. A murderer couldn't get away with the crime. Oh, yeah. So, it had to be an accident. Yeah. It's like, no matter how evil they were, you can't kill your wife and get away with it. Right. Right. Because that just is immoral and we can't let people see this immorality on the screen. And God forbid someone who is an emotionally abusive spouse, like, is a victim of, you know, is a victim of a murder of passion. And I'm not saying murder your spouses. That's not okay, no matter how manipulative and evil they are. But it's, she's basically saying, I'm going to ruin your life. I'm ruining it right now. And I love it. What are you going to do about it? No, because he says, like, after, because he's like, oh, I must have gone mad and blacked out conveniently. My air quotations were back. But, um, and he said that after he must have struck her, because he doesn't remember, that she looks at him and she has almost this look of triumph on her face and that she falls past. And this, again, is that camera just continuously panning. Mm -hmm. And it pans down to, like, this little area with a bunch of rope where she had fallen and was dead. Mm -hmm. So he puts her on her boat. Pokes a bunch of holes in the bottom of it, opens up all the things, and what sinks it. What about the seacocks? What, the, what happened with the seacocks? Yeah, he opened the seacocks. I don't know what they are. I, I imagine <laughs> that they're no like... It's funnier word than seacock. <laughs> that they're like, like portholes or something. Why is a seacock different than a landcocks? I need the difference. <laughs> he hits the seacocks. No, he just opens them. Oh. And he takes a spike and he dry, He makes holes in the boat. Oh, I thought he hit something. Never mind. Um, I wasn't listening, apparently. So there has to be a new inquest... He says, oh, sorry, I misidentified the first body. And they're like, ah, it's okay. Don't oh, worry about it. But something I noticed, though, it's like as soon as he tells all of this and kind of unloads all of this onto narrator, she's like kind of snaps to attention. She's like, okay, this is what we're doing. We're doing this. We're doing this. Mm-hmm. And she is organizing it. She's like, you're not going to jail. We got this. A, B, and C, let's go. He also tells her that that funny little look that she had that funny little confused look is now gone yeah i literally wrote down yeah it's a shame that telling your new wife that you killed your first wife changed her it's like sorry about that <laughs> uh, it's also that theme of growing up sometimes sometimes you receive a bit of knowledge or some insight and it just completely changes you having like some sort of insight about religion or lack of religion or learning about things happening in a different country or something even happening within your own family mm-hmm. that just like changes your whole worldview and you kind of become a grown-up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you, it, like those things happen, those shifts happen where it's like, I'm never going to be the person I was before because of this. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those times. Sorry it affected me, Maxim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. We have the new inquest and it all seems to be going okay. Yeah, it's like, I kind of, like, I know he should be worried, but also I'm like, this is a bunch of, like, staunch old white men that 
like you and don't think you're lying and would never dream that you are. But they also liked Rebecca more. Ah, okay. No okay. one, no one else knows about how you know, terrible the, she was. Yeah, but on the surface, she was an angel. So it's that's <laughs> where that underlying stress, where he's just like, I'm gonna get caught. This is gonna come out, and this is gonna be bad. So it's not until the guy says, "Oh no, the boat was sunk on purpose," that they start asking some more questions. And also, during this inquest, uh, Danvers and um, Jack are both in the room. And they kind of are having all this silent conversation. Like, the eye contact and just like, mm-hmm, and all of these things. It's like, what are they saying to each other? Like, what's happening right now? That was one of those questions that I had. It's like, and I think they know, or I think they have an idea of what happened. Is it's like So it's like, I wonder what they're trying to communicate to each other in that moment. They adjourn for lunch, basically. Yeah. And... The, the De Winters are having lunch in their car. Um, they sent along a picnic basket and Favelle comes up and says, hey, I've got something really interesting you might want to look at. But not before grabbing a chicken leg. <laughs> yes. He makes sure that he helps himself to lunch. And he shows them this letter that Rebecca wrote him. It alluded to the fact that she was pregnant. I don't think that it actually said that she was. I think it at least said she went to the doctor. She went to the doctor and she had news to tell him. Yeah, so it kind of alluded to it. It didn't come out right and mm-hmm. right say it. But, but Val's trying to blackmail DeWinter with this. And so DeWinter, being the upright standing guy that he is, tells them that he's trying to blackmail him, shows the letter... And they set out to track down the doctor, which apparently everybody's going to go to talk to the doctor. Road trip, let's all go. (laughs) Well, this is where I have issues with the movie because this is the point where Hitchcock basically has the narrator go off back to the house. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the book, she's there. So it's like, that's my one stipulation of the movie. We're just like, out of her own story well yeah and it feels really weird that she's not there yes. she's been there the entire time why all of a sudden would she not be there because this is man's work and you know there's also the thing of like at the like near the end there's a moment of danger where you think oh no is our narrator in trouble damsel in distress so they track down the doctor and of course there's way too many people there you know, watch watching all of the crime television that too I watch. Too many chefs, not enough. Too many chefs in the kitchen. I'm like, you can't take these people to interview a witness. But they were um, still figuring that out at that point. <laughs> the justice system. Because yeah, of what there's like five people that go, and they're just like, I want to come too. And they're like, Well, I guess he has the right to. He had the letter. <laughs> well, I, he's he's implying all of these things happen, so I guess he has to come. We're still outlining corpses with chalk, so I guess you may. Welcome. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and they talk to the doctor, and he says that he never had anyone by the name of DeWinter. She was going by the name Danvers to go and see him. And she wasn't pregnant. She had cancer. It kind of made me feel like she, in the movie, goaded Maxim into killing her to avoid a very painful death from cancer. And that's what I was going to ask you, Casey, because I haven't finished the book yet. Mm -hmm. Is that what happens in the book? That is what happens in the book. Okay. So uh, I believe that there's either a line in the book or in the movie. It's Again, it's been a while. But basically the only thing Rebecca feared was like a slow lingering death. Mm. And there, you know, there's also the benefit of, hey, if Maxim kills me, 
he'll go to jail. So it's like, I might be dying, but I'm taking him down with me. Yep. That's what I was wondering what a because lovely person. <laughs> because she could, you know, just commit suicide. Yeah. But she wanted like her last final act was to ruin somebody else as well. Yeah. It's also interesting to me because it's like, yeah, she was manipulative and kind of an awful person, but like that would take a lot of personal strength to be able to do that, to be able to like set off to have a conversation in which you hope the outcome is a person kills you. Mm-hmm. Like I can't even imagine what that would feel like. So that, I mean, that's extreme strength, mm-hmm. even if it's evil. Yeah. So very interesting. Because before they were trying to say like, oh, it might've been a suicide, but they were like, well, why would she kill herself? She had all this to live for. Well, with this news, it makes suicide seem like a more viable option. Right. And in a way it was. Yeah. It's just that she's, uh, she's just narcissistic enough to be, to be like, not gonna do it i'm gonna have the husband i hate do it and then hopefully he'll hang he'll be dead too (laughs) but in light of the bit of a psychopath yeah yeah in light of the cancer news they go oh well maybe she did want to go out on this boat that she loved Mm -hmm. and so it's all cleared up and maxim is going home but in the meantime favel has called Danvers and told her Rebecca was pregnant. That and in no uncertain terms, sis snaps. Yeah. <laughs> like goes off. And she sets fire to Manderley. She's like, I'm gonna burn this to the ground. Literally. <laughs> I'm gonna burn this mother down. So what they did for this scene, because of course they, they burned the miniatures. Oh, this is with the puppet car. I'm sorry. <laughs> but they also had a set that they set on fire because you see Danvers running around through the flames. They lined her dress with asbestos to try to protect her from the flames. Speaking of cancer. Yeah. Oh. And so it was her and her um, body double that they would film in among these flames. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. And again, Liberty's taken here from in the book because in the book, no one sees Danvers. The house is burned to the ground, and you remember at the very beginning, uh, I wonder where Mrs. Danvers is now, and it's just like, <gasps> still out there! She's gonna come back like Jason! <laughs> or Michael Myers! She's just like creeping behind a tree, she's just like, da-da-da! With a match. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get you! Oh, wow, that's even creepier! I wish they had done that! It's interesting that that change was made, because... David O. Selznick didn't want any changes from the book. Hitchcock wanted to play around with the story a little bit, but he said, no, you can't do that other than the ending that they had to change. But Hitchcock also took used the advantage that David O. Selznick was completely, like, focused on Gone with the Wind. So he used that to his advantage to, like, get the things that he wanted. Yeah, and Davey wanted, like, weird changes, weird things as well. Like, he wanted the chimney or the ashes to like be in a huge R and like to come out of the R. Hitchcock was like no he wanted the smoke from the burning house to make an R in the sky which Hitchcock did not do his compromise was that he showed the pillowcase that Danvers had embroidered with the R on it burning yeah it's like this is also why film producers need to take a step back sometimes it's like you need to let your director like 
worry about this sometimes. But also make sure you hire a director who is a good boss. Yeah, that isn't like abusive and isolating his lead actress. So to get a good performance. I think an interesting thing when this won for best picture, Hitchcock didn't get the Oscar for it. Uh, David O. Selznick did because it was a David O. Selznick production. Ooh, Mm -hmm. that had to be a major strike to his ego. Yeah, Hitchcock never won an Oscar. I remember someone telling me this like years ago, but I didn't know it was Hitchcock. Apparently he has the shortest Oscar speech ever because it was an honorary award. He got it, walked up to the mic, said thank you, and then turned and walked away. <laughs> wow. He's probably like, this is just honorary. It doesn't mean anything. So <laughs> so now I kind of want to get to the point where I want an Oscar and have a shorter one and just like, thanks. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> just walk off, skip off. <laughs> no, did we talk about, so did we get to the end? Yeah, and okay, the yep. end is cool. the burning house, and they're trying to get out as many things as possible. And Jap's, Jasper's safe. Jasper's mm-hmm. safe. The narrator's safe. The narrator's yep. safe. The puppet car's safe. Yeah, and they kiss in front of the burning house, and... Because that's appropriate. Because their love is ablaze. <laughs> <laughs> and the end. Yay! Yay! One thing that I've been wondering about is, do you think this movie passes the Bechtel test. And for those of you who don't know what the Bechtel test is, the basic qualifications are, are there more than one female character in the movie? Do they both have a name? So it's not just like woman one and woman two. And do they talk about something other than a man or a love interest? Yes. It does pass the Bechdel test. I was like, they talk more about Rebecca than anybody else. And there's also Beatrice... Lacey talking about hey what if your hair looked like this and then the narrator pushes her hair back and she's like no that's a bad idea (laughs) never mind I I was wrong (laughs) my bad so here at Fatal Films we explore the women of mystery um, writers actors stories that center around women the Bechdel test is a really cool thing I use it a lot when I'm trying to decide movies to go see do you think it's important for the movies that we talk about to fit this criteria, or does it not really matter as long as there is at least written by a woman or one strong female character in the story? I think if you listen to How Did This Get Made, there are movies that pass the Bechdel test but are still extremely sexist. (laughs) So uh, I would say um, as long as there is a well-rounded female character, I would say my favorite productions have involved like a cat a cast and crew of like half women okay or i'll i'll take like a quarter we're still in the early days of feminism somehow (laughs) (laughs) imagine that so it's it kind of sounds like the bechdel test should be like considered but maybe not the sole decider yes I think that that's a fair point. I think that's a very, very fair point. I think it's kind of like a Rotten Tomatoes score. It's something that can kind of help inform you. You can think about it and take a look at it, but again, it shouldn't be your sole defining factor in why you pick something. Right, exactly. And and I think, like, those things need to be considered. Also, your interest in the the film or Mm -hmm. the whatever it happens to be, whatever medium it is. It's like your gut instinct when you're watching something or reading something is going to tell you, oh, is this a good fit or is it not? Like, you'll you'll have a good indicator. But all of those things are good to use. What grade do you give this? Oh, a, I give the book an A+, and uh, the movie, 
Uh, I kind of give an A, A minus just because of the little changes. And it's, you know, a product of the time. Mm -hmm. It's a product of Hitchcock with his own ways of, you know, wanting to tell a story. But yeah, I love this story. I love it so much. <laughs> uh, oh, my grade? I, I am going to probably agree with Casey. I would say A minus around there because I think we do have to take, take into consideration the director and the means that he used to get the result. So while it's really great, I'm not like crazy about that. And I'm not crazy about how he treated women. But I think it's a great way to show a, a complex, strong character that's a woman in a much different way. Because she's not just like, oh, I'm strong. Bah, 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 bah. She's, it's a very different kind of strength. And it shows the journey she has to go on to kind of get there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I think A minus A floating right around there. Yeah, I think I'd give it an A. And I haven't finished the book yet. But as where I'm into it right now, I give it an A+. plus. Now, there were some interesting things about this book. Um, Daphne du Maurier was accused of plagiarizing this book and actually had to come to the U.S. and be involved in a court case to determine if it was actually her own work or not. She was actually accused of plagiarism twice um, for this, her story, The Birds. I don't know how you prove that somebody didn't plagiarize something. Were the cases thrown out or did she settle out of court? Does anyone know? I don't know. I don't remember. It's a mystery. But I think, I think for the most part, they were discredited because if you look at the properties that they talk about, those are her two most popular properties. Mm -hmm. So a part of me is like, hmm, you're not doing this with the scapegoat yeah. <laughs> or, my cousin, or my cousin Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> so, and honestly, I mean, if you're a big fan of Austin Cleon, like I am, who wrote Steal Like an Artist and Share Your Work. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as an original idea. No. No such thing. In fact, there are elements of in here that remind me of, you know, the most popular gothic romance, which is Jane Eyre. Mm. There's a house set on fire. There's a previous wife. The narrator is, um, you know, your main character who falls in love with someone who's 20 years older than she is. And is very broody. Very brooding. <laughs> All the brooding. Well, the author who accused her said that there were actually, like, huge chunks of dialogue that she directly stole. Not just, like, an idea, huh. but that she actually copied complete chapters and chunks of her novel I don't and even put it know. in Rebecca. I don't even know how you would begin to prove it, even at that point. Like, now maybe with technology, like, looking at computers or something? I don't know. Yeah. But, like, back then, how, how can you... Like, oh, well, this paper says it was written six months before. <laughs> Gotta believe it. It's notarized. <laughs> it's like someone left this manuscript on my, on this random desk in a hotel. Oh, it's good. I should put my name on it. <laughs> <laughs> so there is another adaptation of Rebecca. Have you ever seen it? There are two. Oh, two other ones. Okay. So there's one with Jeremy Brett that uh, I kind of started watching. And to be honest, he looks more like the Maxim de Winter in my head than Laurence Olivier does. And then there's one with Charles Dance, who many people would know as Tywin Lannister from Game oh. of Thrones. And I saw clips of that and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> and of course they just, what, like two or three days ago announced that there is going to be a new adaptation starring Arnie Hammer. Arnie and Hammer Lily. and Lily James. Yeah. 
thoughts. She's just in everything lately. Is she good? Have I seen anything? I mean, you guys don't know these questions. I'm posing them to myself. <laughs> I don't know if I've actually seen her in anything. I haven't seen her in much. She's in uh, the Netflix movie, uh, The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. I want to watch that. It's it's a very nice... Re- it's a, I, I read the book first, and, and uh, it's a, it's a well-done movie. Um, and she was also in Mamma Mia 2, which I also haven't seen. I haven't seen that. That's where I, like, knew the face from. Yeah. I haven't seen it. She was no. in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and she was also Cinderella in the Kenneth Branagh movie. I haven't seen any of those. I haven't seen any of those either. Wow. But I know I see, I've seen her in at least one other thing. I just can't remember what it is. So, yeah, she is starting to be in everything. She's, I haven't seen her range. Uh, I think that... The demeanor I've seen her portray, she would be good as the narrator. I just think the narrator is a hard character to play to. It may help that she's also 29. But my problem here is that, and it's actually one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of Laurence Olivier as Maxim de Winter, is because when Laurence Olivier filmed, he was around 33, and Army Hammer is 32. And yeah. to me... When I read the book, the age discrepancy is, it really associates the power dynamic. And when that open communication happens where Maxim confesses who Rebecca was and what he did, you see, kind of see an equalization of power happen despite their age difference, despite their class, Mm -hmm. which to me makes it a feminist read when i saw army hammer <laughs> was just like he's gonna play maxim i'm like here's what happened and here's what i realized last night i'm like he's young and then last night oh this reminds me of 50 shades of gray mm. he has that all-american look he's wealthy and he has that fruity factor and sort of like a dominance thing and i'm yeah. like that's not okay. No. I'm not okay with this. And I think Army is very talented, but you yeah. also can't play older. And that's, you know, that's something that we know as actresses. Yes. But it's it's also like someone can be a talented actor, but not right for everything. Yeah. When I saw his name attached to this, because I initially thought I saw a different name. I don't know which one I saw, but I thought I saw someone else. And I was like, oh, cool. But then I went back. I was like, Army Hammer. That's no, he doesn't have that quality at mm-hmm. all. And I, and I agree with you. I'd love to see him played a little bit older and the, the age difference mm-hmm. more realistically portrayed. I feel like that would be really strong. Yeah. So who would y'all cast in this? Well, I have a cast. Um, Lay it on me. Here's the thing. What, And it happened just recently that I realized this. I would love to, and this has nothing to do with my own bias towards this actor at all. I think he would be genuinely talented. I think David Tennant would be the best Maxim de Winter we've ever seen. Oh my god, I didn't know I wanted that, now I want that. Yeah, you said it, and fireworks went off in my brain. Oh, yeah. And then, even if they kept Lily James, Mm -hmm. that would be a great age difference. Mm -hmm. That would be a great dynamic, like you said. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, we need that. Write it. Mm -hmm. Who would you cast as Danvers? Uh... I love Sally Hawkins, who was in The Shape of Water. Mmm, okay. Uh, she has that look about her. But I also think Olivia Coleman would be very good. Oh, um, the... Um, Broadchurch. Yeah, Broadchurch. I couldn't think of her name. And I just saw her in The Favorite, and she is amazing. I want to see that so bad. It looks so good. Mm-hmm. Jack Favell uh, would be Bertie Carvel, who uh, played Mrs. Trunchbull in Matilda. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> although, after seeing him in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, I think he would also be a good Maxim, too. He's kind of mm-hmm. like my backup. And Catherine Tate would be my Beatrice Lacey. She would be amazing. Oh my gosh, this is giving me all my Doctor Who fandom needs. It's meeting all of that for me. (laughs) Okay, so wipe that out of your head and tell me your cast. Oh, I can't even begin to think now because that was so great. I I now can't see anyone else but David Tennant in that role. I'm really interested because I don't know Lily James that well, so... And I don't want to hold this against her because Joan Fontaine was very pretty. She's very pretty. And I mm-hmm. just want to make sure that there's more than just pretty. Here, here's something else that I thought of. I don't want to cast that's too white. As I was thinking about the book, I'm like, okay, so the character, the narrator is described as just having a bob and being like kind of tall and skinny. What's to prevent her from being a person of color, which is nothing. And I really want Crawley to be a person of color. That would be great. For sure. Or Rebecca could have been, and then yeah. um, Favelle being her cousin could be cast. That's true, as, yeah. I mean, and Danvers could be as well. You get into the issue then again with the yeah. servant characters that, always being... That's what I was... Uh, that's what I considered, too. I'm just like, I don't want to just have, like, the servant character... I don't want all the servant characters Or the characters that come from a, a yeah. low social class yeah. to be of color. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Van Hopper could also be... Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of room for that. I'm going to have to think about this one because I can't get over David Tennant. That's all I'm thinking about. Right yeah, now. I know. And Catherine Tate as Mrs. DeLacy would Ugh. be. Like, she'd be perfect. Yep. I could also see if that if she could take on a dramatic role, that might be a very interesting Danvers. Yeah. I don't know what that would look like, but I think she could do that. I don't see, I don't think he could pull it off acting-wise. And <sighs> can we make Idris Elba, Elba Maxim to Winter? Why not? I'm into it. I I will see. There's I I have a slight um, obsession obsession with Idris Elba, and I, I just want. I'm like, could he just be the narrator? <laughs> he I, just, all he needs is a bob. He would make an amazing oh Maxim De Winter. Could, oh mm-hmm. my god! Could you? Mm, now yeah. that's what Lacey wants. Yeah, he's about 42. He's in his like 40s, and there could be Idris you know. Elba is the perfect age. Yeah, he is. Okay, everybody, we need to start a campaign to get either Casey's casting or Lacey's casting done. To be fair, I only cast one person. Right. Okay, <laughs> we'll combine the two. I'm sorry, I love David Tennant so much, but we'll we'll go with Idris. Idris Elba yep. is Rebecca. Here at Fatal Films, we always like to give you a recommendation of where to go next if you liked this. Lacey, what do you recommend? Um, I'm going to stick with um, Daphne du Maurier and suggest my cousin Rachel. I just watched the adaptation with um, Rachel Weiss, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed not knowing, like having that uncertainty. So I would say go there. I want to see the, um, I believe it's the 1952 version, and there's a book as well. So lots of avenues to explore. Yeah. A fact about that, Daphne du Maurier did not like um, Olivia de Havilland as M- Rachel. Which is also Joan Fontaine's sister, who she has severe sibling rivalry with. Yeah, but yeah, she didn't like that adaptation. It was one of the movies that she didn't like. That probably didn't do anything bad for their sibling relationship at all. (laughs) That probably didn't factor in at all. And that was not my recommendation, because we might be doing an episode on it. But that's okay. (laughs) Casey, what is your recommendation? Well, I'm going to go the gothic romance route, Um, and you have a couple of options. Uh, So if you want to see, like, a kind of newer gothic romance, 
Um, Crimson Peak is okay. It's good. Okay. It's not bad. Um, I do wish that it had been written by a woman and directed by a woman, but, you know, Guillermo del Toro, very talented filmmaker. Uh, but I am actually going to lean towards, I'm going to lean more towards uh, Jane Eyre, just because, to me, that's kind of like the original suspense novel, because back then, you don't, you didn't know what was happening. Now there are spoilers abound. Mm -hmm. And I just picked up, I literally just picked this up this morning. It's a book called Jane Steele. So I'm literally just on the first chapter, but it's called Jane Steele. It's by Lindsay Fay, and it kind of takes the idea of what if Jane Eyre had more murder. <laughs> <laughs> specifically done by the narrator so it's kind of like uh it's not jane Eyre. she ref this is actually something that bothers me in like books and tv when they reference their original source material mm. but it's jane Eyre meets dexter because one of the lines in the first ch chapter is reader i murdered him oh my gosh <laughs> hooked <laughs> immediately so my recommendation is another Hitchcock movie, Notorious, and this one stars Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant and Claude Rains, and this is the story of a woman. She, the, the female character falls in love with Cary Grant. She is asked to become a spy because her father was a Nazi, and she does this while she gets placed in this situation where she has to kind of like pretend that she loves this other guy to get information. And she's stuck between these two men and they're playing her on both sides. And she is strong and I love her and check this one out. Sold. Okay. Yeah, thanks for being with us today, Casey. Yes, this was a lot of fun. You. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to stand over Stanverse. <laughs> we stand Stanverse, but do you stand Stanverse? We are Stanverse. <laughs> Where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at that Casey Ryan. That is T H A T K C R Y A N. And we've never given out our personal social media stuff. So, Lacey, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, C, Gonzalez, with an S at the end. On, that's on Twitter. And then on Thank Instagram, you, you can find this me episode at Fatal Fabby Lacey. To keep up with us, and my Instagram and Twitter, Twitter are the fatal same underscore Cannon, Have a suggestion or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfeminspodcast at gmail.com. Here is our clue for our While you're at it, make sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. simple motto. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're part of the problem. We'll find you. Thanks for listening.